There's one study that I talk about in the book. It's really about it was math problems and public speaking. So the sort of that stress shame combination mm. that people can have. And they measured levels of interleukin-6, which is a type of inflammatory protein. And researchers showed that the people that had the highest levels of stress and shame had higher levels of interleukin-6. The people that practice self-compassion had the lowest levels of interleukin-6. When the body is in that stressed state, that will shift the body into that more of that sympathetic state, which will impact inflammation levels, which will impact the gut-brain axis, the connection between the two, and will impact the brain hormonal axis. Hey guys, welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. And guys, I'm just so pumped up about today's episode. I interview Dr. Will Cole, and he is the face behind the popular podcast, The Art of Being Well, and New York Times best-selling author. And he just came out with his fourth book, gut feelings, where he addresses the shame-fueled relationship between what you eat and how you feel and shares ways on how to reduce stress and inflammation, not only by the foods you consume, but by changing your mind and addressing past trauma and the emotional aspect. I just finished interviewing Dr. Will. And as you can tell, I am so fired up. In this episode, we talk about diet culture and anti-diet culture and how both are toxic, how shame can be causing gut issues, good foods versus bad foods, and if there is a difference, ways to not obsess over health all while continuing to follow the diet you as an individual need to support your own health needs. We also talk about the vagus nerve, EMDR, childhood trauma, alcohol, inflammatory foods, and so much more. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Will Cole. If you suffer from headaches, you're not alone. One in every six people suffer, and more than 8 million Americans visit their doctor for headache-related issues each year, 75% of which are women. Of course, women go through more hormonal changes each month and their moods fluctuate, which can cause migraines to the point of many unable to even function, let alone work or be the mother or wife they typically are on a daily basis. We need help. But the side effects from NSAIDs like Advil or other over-the-counter anti-inflammatories sometimes aren't worth it. But did you know that CBD has been shown time and time again, study after study, to be one of the best natural anti-inflammatories available? and no prescription is required. Ned is a brand I've been personally consuming for over two years, and one of their newer products is their Brain Blend. It not only contains full-spectrum hemp, but also botanicals to help support brain function and clarity, such as MCT, ginkgo, bacopa, Siberian ginseng, lion's mane, and lemon essential oil. I took this blend when I had a major headache and within 30 minutes, it was gone. No joke. So if you need a natural relief from headaches or just want more clarity in your brain to think and focus, I highly recommend Ned's Brain Blend. 
become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code digest. Go to helloned.com slash digest or enter code digest at checkout to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering my listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Thank you so much, Dr. Will, for coming on the show. Your new book called Gut Feelings just came out and holds so much information on the gut-brain connection, as well as beautiful photos of delicious recipes, such as an almondberry crumble, apple puff pancakes, and Moroccan-inspired lamb burgers, just to name a few. Is this your, your fourth or third book? Fourth book, yeah. In three years, since 2018. So however okay. many years is that? A few years, a few, a few more years, but it's been a lot. It's been a lot for sure, especially because it's not my day job. <laughs> my day job yeah. is, is running a telehealth center, seeing patients. But yeah, thank you. I love writing and I love educating people that way. It's crazy. Four books. And you know, I, I really want to talk about your newest book, Gut Feelings. And you talk a lot about the gut-brain connection and I want to go into that a little bit more as well, but the gut and brain are formed in the same fetal tissue. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when babies are growing in their mother's womb, the gut and brain are formed from that same tissue that's formed together and they are linked for the rest of all of our lives through what's known in the research as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. But there's so many far-reaching ways and pathways in which the gut and the brain are connected, right? Part of it is the enteric nervous system and the vagus nerve, which is sort of the main mechanism of action that researchers are exploring of how does, in part, at least in one way, how does the gut and the microbiome, which is all the trillions of the bacteria in the gut, how does it crosstalk? How does it communicate with the brain? Well, the vagus nerve is a central part of that. So that's what I get to explore in gut feelings is the influence of how do we improve our vagal tone, as the researchers call it, which is responsible for our mood. It's responsible for our energy levels. It's responsible for hormone balance because it's the resting, digesting, that parasympathetic aspect of our autonomic nervous system. Yeah. Well, let's explore the vagus nerve a little bit more because I feel like it plays such a huge role in the body and a lot of people don't even know about it or if they do, they really don't know much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And the autonomic nervous system has two different branches, the three main branches, but the two main ones are the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So it's the, the sympathetic is the fight or flight, the stressed state, and the parasympathetic is the resting, digesting, hormone balance state. They both are important. So when you hear people talking about nervous system regulation or a dysregulated nervous system, what they're talking about in part is that sympathetic, parasympathetic imbalance where most people are overactive in that sympathetic state. All you have to do is look at our culture and our world and you'll see varying degrees of that on every level, right? But also a, a weak parasympathetic or a, a hypofunction of the parasympathetic. So they're dealing with anxiety and exhaustion and different inflammatory problems and digestive problems and hormonal problems. So that's what the vagus nerve is responsible for. So many, much of, if not all of the protocol within gut feelings is 
to strengthen the vagal nerve tone to regulate the nervous system, uh, which will in part cause a lot of gut-brain axis improvements and then it, therefore brain hormonal uh, communication uh, improvements too. So it's we're dealing about, but the, I called the book Gut Feelings for different reasons, but I mean, we use that term right in our culture, right? Gut feelings, gut instincts. I just have, but you know, a, a feeling in my gut, butterflies in my stomach. Mm. Somehow, our researchers, somehow our ancestors, sorry, knew what now researchers are confirming, right? That 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 so much of our body, so much of our being, originates in the gut. That the gut was somehow the seat of the soul. And our ancestors didn't have the randomized control trials that researchers now have that we now have today. But researchers are really in many ways catching up with antiquity that we, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine said all disease begins in the gut. Paracelsus, the father of toxicology in the late 1400s, early 1500s talked about how the gut was a major player in human health. They saw this because of thousands and thousands of anecdotal evidence observing people as physicians as healers and uh, it's just profound to, to think about the the influence that the gut has on our mood and it's the gut and the feelings the physiological and the psychological and the bi-directional relationship between the two because really gut feelings is a conversation of how in the west will oftentimes separate mental health from physical health that you know it's a mental health issue and somehow relegate it as separate than the rest of us right but yeah if we have a stomach issue or a neuro you know, a, a um, musculoskeletal issue for example it's a physical issue and you go to the doctor but somehow mm -hmm. mental health is still compartmentalized as a separate thing this abstract chemical imbalance that we don't even measure on labs uh people are just given prescriptions for this abstract concept and really what i wanted to have a conversation in the book was what i get to see play out in patients labs all the time and it's in it's the influence of the physiology of our physical health on our mood but then conversely how the mental emotional spiritual things and the research around unresolved trauma and chronic stress and how these mental emotional feeling aspects of gut feelings how does that influence our biochemistry so it's hugely important because you look at the statistics of different mental health issues or different autoimmune problems and those are the people that i talk to on a daily basis and we don't have to settle for it we don't have to settle for just this bleak existence of of poor health and we have to do something different to see something different yeah. Well, I mean, you touched on so many great topics. And as as you see clients on a regular basis, what is the most common issue everyone seems to have? I would say the commonality is chronic inflammation. I mean, that's the commonality, but it's the commonality. So we have to then ask the question, what's causing the inflammation? And that's really what gut feelings that I really get to discuss about in the book that I didn't I never really got the chance to, in book form, talk about it before. I talk about it with patients on an hourly basis. It was just a matter of when and how did I put it in book form? Because there's both physiological factors of chronic inflammation and then psychological aspects of chronic inflammation. So when you, that word inflammation is thrown around in the wellness space or health space or the fitness space, we're talking about chronic inflammation. Inflammation is not inherently bad. It's a product of the immune system, but yet it is the commonality between just about every health problem under the sun. I mean, moderate immune problems, metabolic issues, weight loss resistance, brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, depression, type two diabetes, cancer, heart disease, all have chronic inflammation 
as its common link, meaning they are considered to be overtly chronic inflammatory in nature, or at least having an inflammatory component. But something causes the dysregulation of the immune system. Something's causing the inflammation. So we have to look at both the physiological and the psychological aspects. What are the pieces to that puzzle? And it's going to be different for every person, mm -hmm. but it's it's just a dysregulation of our body. So when you have dysregulated immune system activity, that's chronic inflammation. And when you have dysregulation of our nervous system, it's going to be that hypervigilant fight or flight stressed state. And they often, they go hand in hand because there's a lot of interplay between the neuroinflammatory mechanisms of the body or the nervous system and the immune system. Yeah. Well, and I love that you mentioned in your book, shameflammation. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Sure. Yeah. So it's my made up word. It's not a real word. <laughs> but it should just, be. <laughs> but maybe it will be a word now. But it's just my commentary on the research and the scientific literature around the mind-body connection. I mean, how do things like chronic stress and shame and things that are causing the shame, how does that influence our physiology? So it's a lot of what gut feelings is about is not just about what we're feeding our body, but also what are we feeding our head and our heart? Like, how are we, what are these abstract, <clears throat> oftentimes less prescriptive, less linear, less, you know, more nebulous things like thoughts and emotions. Like it's not, it's very cut and dried for me to say, okay, this is what the research shows as far as food and clinical nutrition and ways to support our physiology and our health and our mood and support healthy inflammation levels from a nutrition standpoint. And I put that in the book, obviously, because that's how the physiology impacts the mental emotional, your mental emotional health. But these more complex topics is really what I wanted the meat of gut feelings to be about. Uh, these uh, like thoughts and emotions and these neural pathways that we feed ourselves from very young age oftentimes. And how does that influence our biochemistry today? Things from our past or things that we are doing for ourselves and to ourselves in the present moment. Um, so shameflammation is the intersection between the thoughts and emotions and a way that impacts your biochemistry. So something like shame will influence things like chronic inflammation. But th what's causing the shame is typically some conglomeration of past trauma, unresolved past trauma. trauma stress, shame, yeah. Exactly. And then pr pr present stress, like you said, someone that's stressed out, they're maybe snapping at their loved ones, they're more irritable because they're stressed, they're maybe um, not present, they're on their phones because they're stressed and distracted and trying to numb themselves. And they are oftentimes eating foods that don't love them back very often because it's quick and convenient and they're just stress eating. So there's a lot of shame inflammation with chronic stress in the present moment, but then obviously unresolved trauma in the past. And oftentimes, for, at least for patients over the years, it's a bit of both, right? Because it's so, it's a part of the, the food we're feeding ourselves. I call them metaphysical meals. It's like, what are, what are we feeding our body on proverbially uh, through our thoughts and emotions and our experiences? So it's it's about unpacking that. It's about shifting our focus and shifting our intention towards ser serving our body with 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 thoughts and emotions that love us back, which is a, certainly a journey to retrain the brain. I mean, everyone has struggled and can relate to shame in some way or another. And so are you saying that shame actually affects our digestion and gut health? Yeah, yeah. So there's 
lots of growing research in this of the mind state and the influence of our physiology. So our body, first of all, our body does not really, whether it's a real threat or perceived threat, the body is going to respond the same, right? And if the body is already because of food, maybe, um, uh, and poor gut health because of the foods that people are eating our environmental the aspect of our of this larger plant soil microbiome of the planet and its intimate connection with our own gut microbiome that's a major component already and then on top of that these feeling sides of gut feelings that is a contributing factor and for some people it's a significant factor on the influence that's having on the gut brain axis on on our nervous system because it's contributing to that dysregulation it's contributing to the overactivation of that sympathetic tone that fight or flight stress state and it's contributing to the weakness of the poor vagal tone of that resting digesting uh, hormonal balance state so there's one study that i talk about in the book it's really about stress and shame it had to do with public speaking which that could be a lot of uh, shame a source of shame for some people it's just one specific example in a study it was math problems and public speaking so the sort of that stress shame combination mm. that people can have and they measured levels of interleukin-6 which is a type of um, inflammatory protein that we can measure and researchers show that the people all the people that had the highest levels of stress and shame had higher levels of interleukin-6 the people that practice self-compassion which we talk about in the book and what that looks like, had the lowest levels of interleukin-6, lowest levels of this inflammatory protein. That's just one example in the studies to show that, but I talk a lot, a lot more. I mean, we know that stress state will impact the conversion of T4 to T3, the thyroid hormone. 80% of that conversion happens in the liver, 20% happens in the gut. So when the body's in that stress state, whether that's physiological stressors like the foods that don't love us back that are contributing to that, or these mental emotional feeling side of it, that will shift the body into that more of that sympathetic state, which will impact inflammation levels, which will impact the gut brain axis, the connection between the two, and will impact the brain hormonal axis. Wow. I mean, there's so much to take in there. And so you did say inflammation, things that can cause inflammation in the brain to like trauma, shame, stress, things like that. What are maybe some foods that cause inflammation in the gut? There's a lot of bioindividuality with this, right? And I, I don't want to, I, I want people to explore what their body loves and what their body hates and not make any overly statements. Re reductive statements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Can we can talk about the exceptions for everything? Because I, I mean, if I hung my hat on like one set of rules or like one set of guidelines or prescription, I'd be proven wrong all day long. It is a lot more prescriptive because there are some things that really don't love many humans back way more than the feeling stuff, mm -hmm. which is nonlinear. But so I, what I would call the inflammatory core four plus one would be the four things that I see the most often to disrupt the microbiome in most people. And that would be number one would be industrial seed oils, which are things like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil. You can get better for you versions of those. Mm -hmm. And it's really, in my opinion, this may be slightly controversial within the wellness world, but I think it's less to do with the oils themselves and more to do with the overconsumption of omega-6 oils and not enough uh, consumption of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. That's really the problem. It's, a, it's sort of a what researchers would refer, refer to as an evolutionary mismatch or an epigenetic genetic mismatch 
that a lot of our packaged foods are higher in these polyunsaturated fatty acid industrial seed oils like the ones I mentioned. And they're not eating enough of things like fatty fish and omega-3 rich foods, um, especially the long chain ones like fatty fish. So I would say looking at that as being a component to chronic inflammation and digestive problems uh, specifically too, not just systemic inflammation. Uh, number two would be uh, gluten-containing grains. And I have a nuanced opinion about this. I think it's a mixture of a lot of different factors, like what we've done to grain supply, what we're spraying on the grain supply, the hybridization of the grain supply. Uh, and in some cases, the genetic modification of the grain supply. So it's multifactorial. It's not just making a blanket statement about wheat, um, but it's, you know, and there are better for you versions of wheat, like sourdough, bread, organic, right. when um, ancient grains can be more digestible. Soaked and sprouted grains can be better, yeah. more digestible for some people. But for the sake of simplicity, looking at wheat, um, we're kind of feasting on a famine food that from an ancestral health perspective is uh, just causing a lot of inflammatory problems. And there's a spectrum of responses. It's not just about celiacs. It's about this larger non-celiac gluten sensitivity spectrum that we see on labs all the time. Um, third would be dairy. And there are better for you versions of dairy. Some people do fine with dairy, but dairy can be a potential inflammatory component for many people. And you can get grass-fed organic A2 milk, Goat's milk and sheep's milk tend to be more less reactive. Camel milk, if you have access to it, these foods. But what we've done to the dairy industry is a problem um, as far as the beta A1 casein and the overconsumption of it and then the, the sort of the nutrition profile really being decimated in many sources. Do you feel like cultured dairy, like yogurt, is a lot easier? Yes, uh, for sure, uh, as a general rule. Yeah, and there's people that still have reactions to those, but kefirs, cheeses, yogurts, uh, without a doubt, because it's similar to the sourdough, right? It's like that fermentation process breaks mm -hmm. down the casein, that dairy protein, making it a little bit more digestible. So if you can get a better quality dairy and then on top of that have a fermented version of it, mm -hmm. definitely you're going to decrease the amount of people that are going to have reactions to it. Okay. Um, and then sugar would be the last one, which is kind of an obvious one, but mm -hmm. yeah. And what was the plus one to oh, Sorry, <laughs> addition is, my, is not my strong suit. Uh, <laughs> plus one would be alcohol. So it is not a food per se, but it's a drink, right? It's a, it's a drink. Some people maybe think of it as a food group, but it is not, a, it is a definitely problematic. And it's one of those things that I see still lingering within the wellness conversations. And I'm, I'm a pragmatist and I'm pretty middle of the road with most things. Like there are better for you versions of alcohol, like a low sugar, low alcohol, uh, biodynamic, organic, dry wine, I think can be fine in small amounts for, for people they have a healthy relationship, but I really wanted to have a go at this in gut feelings. It's one of these conversations that I have with patients on a, on a daily basis for new patients, at least. And it's, there's a gut and a feelings conversation around alcohol, because yes, we know what it does on a physiological level. It, there's no healthy amounts of alcohol. It's a neurotoxin. It impacts the gut health. It really can, it 
contribute to dysbiosis or bacterial imbalances in the gut, contributing to leaky gut syndrome, which can trigger systemic inflammation. And then we know even small amounts of alcohol can shrink parts of the brain, which is responsible for mood regulation and memory and contributing to things like fatigue and brain fog and mood issues. So that's kind of what's going on physiologically with alcohol. And some people can tolerate certain levels of it. Um, and certainly, but the feeling side of it, I find to be just as interesting because I see it play out in people's lives as they get kind of defensive about uh, the idea of not even having alcohol in their life. And that sometimes mm -hmm. their whole friend group and social group is centered around this, that it is a very interesting aha moment, I think, for many of our new patients is like, wow, my whole life is really centered around this one thing. And I maybe use it to be that social lubricant or that, you know, that sort of uh, anti-anxiety. And I, I want people to have a mindful come to Jesus moment about alcohol in their life, both from a physiological health and also a social health standpoint, too. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it does alter our gut microbiome for sure. And it does shrink our brain. And I feel like a lot of people say, well, I don't drink that much alcohol. Um, it, it can't really have any effect on me, but I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't need a lot of alcohol for it to have that negative effect of altering our gut microbiome. A small amount. Yeah. The studies are really pointing to small amounts, like smaller than what people would drink for even a serving size uh, that you could have. And it's cumulative, right? If people are consistently having that small amount, it's problematic. So if it's once in a blue moon, that's a bad pun there, but but blue moon. But the, the, the if people are having this randomly and I'm, it's not health food, but the body's amazingly resilient. The human species wouldn't be here if we couldn't handle some stress in the body. Uh, but I, you know, it's the consistent use of it, even like a weekly use of it in small amounts. I see problematic for many people because I'll tell you what, when people that have cleaned up their diet, they're doing all the sort of gut and feelings things, but keeping in like the random weekend alcohol and then they stop that. I really see people that are stuck at plateaus move past it. So don't underestimate even the small stuff because sometimes it's a small stuff is a powerful piece of the puzzle for your health journey. Yeah. Oh, and then you mentioned too the whole social aspect. And then they feel, and then going back to shame, they feel shameful maybe if they didn't partake. And then you go back into that cycle of, okay, I'm feeling shameful. And then that's affecting your gut because of the whole shame aspect that, you know, you just previously talked about. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's totally, it's completely tied into human relationships and, the pre someone's relationship at the present moment, which will impact their mood, impact how they interact with the present moment. Um, yeah, there's a, there can be a lot of inner resistance, a lot of shame, a lot of anxiety around social situations that alcohol can play a part of it, whether you're having it or not having it. What's your relationship with it? And what's your relationship with the present moment? And then how do you use alcohol to handle the present moment? These are questions that people have to ask for them to so ask themselves on a personal level. So I'm not being a teetotaler and saying you can't have any alcohol. I'm just saying this is what the research shows. I want you to make a mindful decision for yourself and explore, explore what your body's capable of. And there's so many interesting things that people can do to support their mood. If they're like, from a social standpoint, these are the mocktails and neurotropics out there. These um, even like CBD products out there that can be really, um, people are looking to unwind or de-stress. You can do it in a way that loves you back a lot more. Yeah. 
Teeth sensitivity is the least of your concerns when whitening your teeth. The ingredients in teeth whitening bleach can actually damage the cells of our gums. It can also damage the nerves, blood vessels, and connective tissues of the tooth. Overuse of these chemicals can lead to tooth sensitivity and gum irritation. If whitening products are used incorrectly, the peroxide in the whitening gel can wear away tooth enamel and irritate the dental nerves. Another risk to teeth whitening is a chemical burn resulting in more severe pain and inflammation if the whitening product reaches the gums repeatedly. And there have been reports that whitening strips may even strip tooth enamel. And tooth enamel cannot be, and I quote, grown back or recovered. Tooth enamel is the hardest tissue in the body. Problem is, it's not living tissue, so it can't naturally be regenerated. Once it's gone, it's gone. That's why it's so important to care for your teeth. There's no recovery. Bite toothpaste bits have been in my household since summer of last year, and they also just came out with a teeth whitening kit, which I'm so excited about because I already love their toothpaste. Bite's teeth whitening kit is made without harmful chemicals and is safe for sensitive teeth. It's also cruelty-free, vegan, and lightly flavored with natural peppermint oil. Plus, it comes in a glass jar with a compostable applicator, so there's no alcohol, no propylene glycol, and no parabens or synthetic dyes or flavors. If you want to try this teeth whitening kit or any of Bite's natural toothpaste bits, Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Just go to trybite.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout to claim this deal. Well, and I want to focus too a little bit on diet culture versus anti-diet culture because I feel like there's there are two extremes here. How can we continue to focus on our health without like overly obsessing over it as well? You know? Absolutely. And that was a big conversation, complex conversation that I wanted to have in the books. It's one that I have with patients all the time. So in many ways, the book is just like anything that I've written. It's normally born out of these conversations that I'm having with patients. And I really wanted to go there, I think, because it's I, I, I see both sides of this toxic tribalism within wellness. And I think that both are really adding to the confusion uh, out there. And a lot of people are falling through the cracks, sort of the middle. And oftentimes, the truth is in somewhere in the middle. And it's not as easy to say, well, this is right and wrong. And this is always this and always that. Very, that reductive sort of black and white view of things. Typically, when you're talking about complex issues, a lot of things are missed. And I have, you have toxic diet culture on one side, which is, you know, eat less, work out more, starve yourself, vanity. It's all about thinness and skinniness and all that stuff. Nobody, you know, everybody knows basically what that is. And we, it's a massive problem in our culture. And then on the other side, it's sort of the new rebound response, sort of the polar opposite in many ways of what I would call toxic anti-diet culture. And I would say it's equally toxic in many ways because yeah. it's with the best of intentions, but you know what they say about the road to hell? 
being paved with good intentions. And I think that in many ways, this side really is. It's some of the sort of most negative, caustic, malignant voices on social media is really born out of this community. And it's sad because it sounds, if there's so much virtue signaling, I think on that side, because it sounds good when you throw words like body positivity and anti-diet culture, it sounds very noble. But when you get to the heart of it, they're, they're hurting people. And a lot of their language is born out of hurt and what they've been, what, what toxic diet culture has done to them, but they've gone so far to the other extreme where they're saying things like there's no such thing as a bad food and eat whatever you want. And mm-hmm. uh, there's no sort of, it, it's, it's, and, and any, and any conversations around food and its influence on physiology is automatically labeled as toxic diet culture. So they sort of shut down any conversation around nutrition. And I think that the middle way of what I talk about in the book is what I call food peace. It's this both and not either or approach because shaming your way into wellness is absolutely antithetical to true like sustainable wellness. As I say in the book, you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot obsess your way into wellness. That is true. But there's also what's also true is the fact that some foods are going to mess up your mood. Some foods are going to impact and contribute to inflammation. Some foods are going to impact energy levels. And avoiding those foods is not restrictive. It's self-respect. Avoiding those foods is not diet culture. It's awareness and healthy boundaries with things that don't love you back. So that's the kind of my functional medicine perspective on that. And I think it's important because you look at what's killing the world. We have a massive metabolic issue. Uh, we the majority of the human race has some massive type two diabetes, insulin resistance, and that doubles your risk of heart attack and stroke. It takes four to ten years off of our life. It doubles your risk of many types of cancer and many other health issues beyond metabolic issues are largely lifestyle driven. So to then to say to people, there's no such thing as foods that don't love you back is is killing people ultimately. Yeah, And I think we need to have a real hard conversation about it because people are hyperventilating about when I talk about foods that don't love you back. But the reality is it's just basic awareness. I look at labs for a living. You will see people's physiology dramatically improve when you eat the foods that I'm talking about in the book, foods that love human beings back. But it doesn't, here's the nuanced perspective on this too. It's that if someone... I, I say in the book, you can eat whatever you want, but I want you to use your meals as a medicine and a meditation. And eating a food that doesn't love you back, it doesn't make you a bad person. And I think that's the misnomer too. It's just saying that person's not having healthy boundaries and they're they're eating, they're going, they're going to be um dimming their light. And if you care about somebody, we should be able to say, look, that's ultimately hurting you. You can make the decision for yourself and there's varying degrees about this, but ultimately that's what's at stake for many people, especially cumulatively over years of their life. Yeah. Well, and I love it too. I mean, because you talk about, you know, body body positivity and everyone's like body positivity and, you know, have your self-respect, but you are right. Choosing healthy food is actually a form of, of self-respect. And, um, you know, I see this all the time on social media where, you know, if you're avoiding uh, seed oils and sugar and processed foods, and I mean, we can't deny that glyphosate is sprayed on so many things and that's causing havoc to our health. And 
then you're you're actually shamed for choosing healthier foods when for a lot of people, a, a lot of my listeners especially too, they have gut issues. And so if someone is avoiding a certain food because it makes them feel better and they feel better and they they eat it or they don't eat it because they don't want to be in pain and then they're shamed for not partaking, that's a huge issue. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely true. And I look, my community are the people that have autoimmune issues. They're people that have digestive problems, metabolic issues. That I get the messages on social media. I have the telehealth consults and they're the ones that tell me, look, I can't even say this on social media, but I, when I eat this food, it makes me feel horrible, but I can't even talk about it because I am shamed. By a cult, by a community that claims to be the most progressive, tolerant people in the world, but yet they're the most. They are. They are. They have. And many of them, the militant ones, have ended up being exactly like the people that they have dislike for, which is intolerance. And ultimately, it's not actually tolerance when you only are nice to people that agree with you. And I find that this is really problematic to this sort of keyboard warrior culture on social media, especially for people that are hurting. You're you're shaming people many times, people that have autoimmune problems, people that have digestive problems, and you're they're already going through so much stuff. And then this quote unquote, tolerant community of body positivity are shaming people that have reactions to foods. So it is, um, it's very upsetting for me because when I'm talking to people with autoimmunity all day, it is very upsetting because they are already disillusioned. And then on top of that, there, this community of, of toxic anti-diet culture is contributing to the confusion. No, I mean, I'm right there with you. And I have such a passion for this, this topic too, because, you know, I, I experience it personally, I'm more on the thinner side. And so when people say, gee, you know, can you just eat a burger or man, you you're so thin. And I'm thinking to myself, obviously I eat very well, very healthy, very clean, but telling someone, wow, you're, you're like really thin or are you okay? And then I I just go back and tell that person, oh, would you tell so-and-so up there? Wow. You look really obese or wow. You have really bad skin. Like, would you tell that to that person? No, you wouldn't. So why would you tell that to me or anyone else that doesn't look like the, you know, the girl next door? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I think there, and, and so much of this is driven by political correctness, right? It's like there's certain things that are on the allowed list and there's th- certain things that are on the not allowed list. So instead of true compassion and true tolerance, which is saying we're all on this path, we're all on our own path. And we're all should, we don't know what the other person's going through. Instead of throwing stones so flippantly and realizing that in many ways, people with autoimmune problems, digestive problems, hormonal issues, chronic fatigue syndrome, people have anxiety, depression, these are silent issues in many ways where you don't see most of what's going on, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's so normalized to throw it at stones. But you're right. If it's it's the right package, if it's the right size, if it's the right whatever the what the person looks like on the outside, there's a no, there's there's a list that, that no one would go to be mean. But yet it's fair game to to shame somebody that looks a certain way, whether it's thinness or whatever we're yeah. talking about. 
yeah, I mean, fat shaming should just be in the same category as thin shaming or as skin shaming or as whatever, you know, that the aspect. And, and that, again, plays into the whole mental part. And that's really not helping any person struggling to gain weight, lose weight, or just be healthier or feel better in general because it's messing with their mind. Now, now speaking of mind, what are any tips that you can share shifting our mind before we sit down and eat a meal? Because a lot of people with autoimmune issues, they do have anxiety about maybe some food that they're going to eat because they're, they're wondering, oh my gosh, is this going to upset my stomach? Is this going to cause an issue? So how do you help someone that mind shift before they sit down? Sure. So within the protocol of the book, a mindful eating, intuitive your awareness of your body and foods that love you back is certainly a process, but it's an integral part of the protocol in the book. And I mean, it could be as simple as just sitting down when you're eating and not running, running around, not eating distracted, not eating stressed, trying to cultivate the space in which you eat the food, the space in which you eat the food, the heart and the headspace in which you eat the food will in many ways be a key component to the outcome of that food. So um, something that I see quite often, and I talk about it in the book, is this orthorexia that can happen within the wellness world. And specifically, I would say within the autoimmune digestive food sensitivity world, right? And it's born, it's, I completely understand it. When you have real reactions to foods, you don't ever want to feel that again. So then you end up saying, okay, I knew this food caused it. And then it's over time as things progress and things are, you know, there's a lot of variables to consider. I typically meet somebody when they're having like seven different foods and there's so much stress and anxiety and shame around the other foods, partly because they just are created these proverbial fences around their breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks because they don't ever want to go on the other side of that and have that flare up again. Because in many ways, they had to be their own doctor. In many ways, they had to navigate this themselves. So I get it. So it's this sort of other route even through orthorexia where it wasn't about thinness. It wasn't about like weight loss. It was about, I don't want to have a digestive flare up. I don't want to have a skin flare up. I don't want to have a neuro flare up from this food again. So these are complex issues and pushing somebody through and just saying, there's no such thing as a bad food, eat whatever you want, could put somebody in the hospital. So it's really irresponsible to say, well, just go and eat it. You have to be thoughtful. Where are you, where's your health at? What's what's your if you're working with the doctor or a nutritionist or functional medicine practitioner, what are they saying? And I think part of it is where you're at right now. If you're going through this digestive problem or autoimmune issue, if you're in a flare or came out of a flare recently, where you're at now isn't going to be your forever. Keep that in mind, that your body is going to evolve. You're on this health journey. Healing is nonlinear, but it is a journey that you can get out of it. And I see people that are with this sort of finite list of foods really able to do reintroduction over time. So all the, the caveat around this conversation is I don't, everybody's at a different point in their journey. But I would say meet your body where it's at now. And the analogy that I use is like a, a proverbial cast. And sometimes you have to have that if you have a broken bone, you have to keep that cast on for a few months. And some, and when you're talking about gut immune access issues, it could be a couple of years uh, being a very specific way. And it's not about bad foods or good foods. It's about what foods love me back and which foods don't right now. But my goal of keeping that proverbial cast on is to allow over time to gain resilience 
and ability to digest and absorb so that list of foods that love me back can grow and grow and grow and grow so you can have a lot of diversity. So we have to keep on that proverbial cast for a while and then over time work on reintroduction of foods and have like that proverbial sling, right? Where we have some movement, we can have some stress on our system, but uh, we don't go just taking off the cast overnight. So, but in addition to the physiological gaining of resilience, i.e. healing the gut, improving digestion and absorption, really getting, if there's any dysbiosis, SIBO, histamine intolerance, oxalate sensitivities, people, intestinal permeability issues, that physiological mending will take time to digest and absorb foods appropriately and have resilience. But simultaneously, because of that trauma around food reactions and flare-ups, there has to be a retraining of the nervous system. So this is a paramount component to dealing with both the gut and the feeling side of it when you're coming out of food flare-up trauma. So practicing things like breath work, practicing things like somatic practices, practicing things like gratitude and present moment awareness, just like mindfulness meditation. We implement things like EMDR for people that have trauma. We practice, we implement things like limbic system retraining, like primal trust or DNRS. I mean, whatever the tools have to be within that toolbox, that is going to be needed. So it could be something as simple as just present moment awareness when you eat, eat, but we know when you're talking about these big, big complex issues like GI issues and autoimmune problems, they're going to need some other tools within their toolbox for sure. Yeah. Well, and you had mentioned EMDR and that stood out to me because I actually have an EMDR machine and I used to do it with my therapist when I used to go and we would do it there. And then I actually bought the machine, but explain a little bit about what that is for people that don't know. Sure. So it could be any type of trauma that you had in your past that that someone could be a good candidate for this. And you would typically go to a therapist that is trained at EMDR and there's telehealth therapists that can do EMDR. There's obviously in-person therapists that that are trained in EMDR, but it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprogramming or reprocessing. And it involves replaying past traumatic thoughts in your brain with the therapist and moving your eye in certain sequences. And the theory is to almost metabolize and cathartically clear stored traumas in the body. It's a sort of a nervous system reprogramming in many ways, um, where that hypervigilance, that that sympathetic fight or flight stress state can start to modulate, calm down, and that parasympathetic, that vagus nerve tone can increase. So you know, there uh, it's been used since I think the 80s. It's not new, but I think that it's grown in popularity because I think the research around trauma and its influence on our physiology has grown in awareness as far as like the mainstream zeitgeist and pop culture awareness of these things. So tools like EMDR uh, are a promising tool within the toolbox when you're talking about the somatic, like the the physical storing of trauma in our body and how that's influencing our gut brain axis. Cause I see people we're dealing with the physiological stuff of getting the gut healthier, improving resilience in the gastrointestinal system. But the feeling stuff is for some people, a significant piece of the puzzle. And I see food sensitivities go away whenever people are consistent with these tools over time. It's not quick fix issues. They're not, they're not quick fix tools, but they are tools to start to retrain that nervous system and how the body is digesting food or, or just existing. 
Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I know we, we've talked about trauma, you know, previously, but I want to go in a little bit deeper in childhood trauma can like childhood years ago, and now you're an adult. Can that actually still have an effect on our health issue? Yeah. So I talked about several studies in the book of how children, people that have had uh, big T trauma, like childhood trauma in their life, um, are more likely to have autoimmune problems, metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes, issues, weight loss resistance, and things like chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, I said autoimmune issues, and of course, hypervigilant nervous systems like anxiety disorders, depression issues, like things like that. So that's what researchers are really exploring of these adverse childhood experiences. And um, that's something that we quantify for every telehealth patient. We have them fill out an, an ACE questionnaire and the research shows the higher your adverse childhood experiences are the higher that your score is the you're more likely to have health issues later on in life it doesn't mean that's the only component it's a combination a confluence of factors people can have a high a score and not have any of these problems but it, it is correlated and associated and certainly a component for many people uh and and it really is a, a piece of the puzzle and um we want we can't change that experience, but we can change how your body is storing it. We can change how your nervous system has sort of regulated around it or dysregulated around it um, to start to retrain that that limbic system. So the answer is yes. And we talk about really intimate things, things like was there physical abuse growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there neglect growing up? Was there uh, substance abuse in the home growing up? And oftentimes I'll say this, that many people, when I'm talking about these things and we're working in conjunction with trauma specialists and EMDR specialists and somatic experience specialists, many people will gaslight themselves and they'll say, well, you know, they'll think of whatever trauma is in their mind. They'll say, well, it wasn't that bad, uh, but yet their ACE score is moderately high. And it doesn't matter. It does us no good to compare ourselves to other people's experiences. It's what your own bio-individual experience is. And it's not just that factor of trauma too. It's just a piece of the puzzle, right? So I think for people to realize that sometimes it's not you know, you didn't go through a genocide or you didn't go through a Holocaust, but you went through something really um, heavy for your body. And it's a contributing factor to why you feel the way that you do. And you don't have to, I, I would just say, explore the possibility that this is a, that this is playing a role in how your body is modulating itself today. Yeah. And you, you, point out something very interesting too, and I completely agree, is that two people can go through the same thing and have completely different reactions and responses. And it could be traumatic for one person and it wasn't really traumatic for the other person. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's that nature-nurture combination that's going to be different for everybody. You're absolutely right. I see siblings that are like, the they have completely different memories of things. They, they receive their, their soul, their spirit, their personality, receive things differently than their sibling. And it, yeah, it's, it's just your journey. And in this realm, it's even with the food stuff. It's comparing yourself to other people it really, uh, it really can be problematic because then you think like that's your litmus test, like that's your code. No, your code is not somebody else's code. It's your code, and you need to find out the pieces to your puzzle. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I also want to 
talk about too that, you know, when you are uh, happy and in a more relaxed state, as mentioned previously, you can digest food so much easier, which also plays into the whole being around friends and the social aspect of it. And being social and being around friends can truly completely change your gut and the way you digest food. So for example, I mean, there's many experiences where, you know, I could go out to eat and I'm having a great time. Uh, I probably don't even know everything that's in the food, but I'm in a more relaxed state. I'm having fun and I digest it fine. And then other times I'll have that same food or I'll even have like a quote cleaner version of the food. And then I still get a, a digestive upset because for whatever reason I was stressed in that, in that moment. So being around friends, being happy can truly just alter the way you digest the food. Absolutely. I mean, it's go, it really goes back to that central point that the space in which you eat the food, phys- meaning physically the space in which you eat the food, like how are you, where are you at, who are you with, but also what's your relationship with that food? How, those are really key ingredients because what is it? I mean, those are supporters. Those are situational supportive supporters of the parasympathetic nervous system. And if somebody's stressed and isolated and obsessing um, around the food, it's going to completely produce a different outcome than if somebody's eating in community, having fun, relaxed. And that's I see this sometimes people that go on vacation, right? And they'll go to different parts of the world and they would, they could never eat. They, they get, they quote unquote, get away with foods that would don't, definitely don't love them back here, but they can get away with it there. And part of that's probably the things that we spray on our foods and sure. the soil, all that stuff. So I, I, it's probably multifactorial, but I still go back to, wow, they are less stressed when they're on vacation typically too. So how much of it is, yes, the physiological of the food quality and the things that we allow in the states that our other countries don't, but also your head and your heart space. And, and mm. that's that determining the digestion and absorption and assimilation of foods as well. Yeah. And it's just something I really love about your book, Gut Feelings, as you really address the whole aspect, the whole body and a lot in the mind. And I feel like what most practitioners are doing the Western medicine way is if someone's depressed or they have anxiety, they give them a pill. And more often than not, that that will cause digestive issues. And then it's another circle. Then those digestive issues are causing the anxiety and the de- more depression. And it it's like a never ending circle here. And I love that you in your book, Gut Feelings, really go at it and try and go to the root cause so that people can truly be free. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I want that. I want that people for people. I want them to have freedom to live the life that they were created for, to do the things that they were love and passionate about and be their own end of one experiment. So it's not somebody on social media or on a podcast pontificating and saying, this is the path. I want people to find the path for themselves and it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to evolve. It's okay to pivot. It's okay to experiment with things without being you being labeled one thing or another, or seeing as it, seeing yourself 
or seeing your life as a failure if you evolve and pivot. So there should be a grace and a lightness. And, you know, that's my podcast is called The Art of Being Well for a reason, because like there's a science and an art to it. And we can use the best of science to our, our availability. But ultimately, there's a lot of nuance and context bioindividuality when you're talking about somebody's life. And it, you know, there's a lot of just anecdotal, like intuitive wisdom that people can have and tap into themselves and have the best of both worlds. Yeah. And I feel like it's always like the chicken or the egg question, you know, like does our diet and gut health affect our brain or does our brain really affect our gut health? And, you know, I, I believe it's, there's really no answer. I think it's both. It's a bit of both. Yeah. It's, it, it's crosstalk. It's bi-directional. Absolutely. So you have to deal with the both and, and I, that's like the, I, I've been on some podcasts and they'll be like, well, what's more important? It depends on the person, right? It's like some people physiologically have a lot going on and it is mainly due to the foods that they're eating. So you're going to, maybe their ACE score is really low. Their chronic stress levels are really low. And they, like those unicorns do exist from time to time. It's not, not common, but they, they're mainly, it's just like the foods they're eating. They're relatively, I don't want to say easy cases, but they're less complex that over time, their body's going to rebound relatively quickly as this example, right? But then some people so much of their sort of gut feelings pie chart is more on the feeling stuff. And it's like, no, their massive needle movers are going to be predominantly there. Their ACE score is really high. They, they've cleaned up their foods that they eat. They are eating foods that love the average human back. And it's not about getting more obsessive about foods. It's about really looking at this feeling side of and how that's influencing their biochemistry. For most of us, it's going to be a bit of both. For both of us, it's going to be this negative feedback loop of gut influencing feelings and feelings influencing gut. And we need to look deal with both gut and feelings. And that's why within the protocol of the book, every day there's a gut tool and a feelings tool. So you really can nourish both sides of this bi-directional relationship. Yeah. I love it. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Will Cole, for coming on the show. Your book, Gut Feelings, is out now, so make sure you guys grab a copy. Um, but before we go, please tell people where can they find you, pimp yourself out, what's your social media, all that good stuff. Thank you so much. Everything's at drwillcole.com. It's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. The we have uh, the telehealth center. Obviously, that's what my day job is. We have new telehealth patient options open now. And the links to the podcast, The Art of Being Well, are there. We have a new episode every week. And the book, you can get uh, Feelings, any other past books, they're all there. But you can get them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, all those places too. But that honestly, thank you so, so, so much for having me. And I love talking to people that, are, that get it uh, and also that are that really know what it's like to go through the trenches. And I could tell just from our conversation that you get it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McComb. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. 
As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. If you're looking to take back your health, it's time for you to listen to the Real Foodology podcast. From the producer of Digest This comes one of Apple Podcasts' top 10 nutrition shows, hosted by integrative nutritionist and real food activist Courtney Swan. The Real Foodology podcast is on a mission to change the way we eat. Courtney interviews doctors, food experts, health professionals, and nutrition pioneers to bring you the best info so you can thrive. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of how impactful our food choices are. But it's never too late to start on the path of better health choices. You'd be so surprised how resilient our bodies are when we start taking care of them. Yes, it's overwhelming, but that's why Courtney's here to help. She breaks it down for you and makes the information more accessible so that you can make more informed decisions in the grocery aisle or restaurant. Listen to the Real Foodology podcast today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resonant Media.